0: You listening to The Sidebar, courtesy of the New York Association of Black Journalists, a program about the world of media as seen through the lens of Black media makers. NYABJ's The Sidebar is proud to host Dwayne Wickham. Dwayne Wickham is one of the founding members of the National Association of Black Journalists, and from 1987 to 1989, was one of its former presidents. Uh, he is an NABJ Hall of Fame inductee, a Society of Professional Journalists fellow awardee, author of four books, namely Fire at Will, Woodholm, A Black Man's Story of Growing Up Alone, Bill Clinton and Black America, and editor of Thinking Black, some of the nation's best Black columnists speak their minds. The principle of catalytic founding is in his blood. He's the founder of the Institute for Advanced Journalism Studies at North Carolina A&T State University, founding dean at the School of Global Journalism and Communication at Morgan State University, founder of the Trotter Group an organization of Black journalists memorializing early 20th century civil rights activist and writer William Monroe Trotter. And Wickham led the first delegation of Black columnists to the White House for meetings during the Bill Clinton presidency, and was part of the historic press corps that accompanied famed freedom fighter Nelson Mandela on his tour of our country in 1992. And I also wanna add that Mr. Wickham is the only surviving president founding member of the NABJ. So welcome to the sidebar, Mr. Wickham. It's a pleasure to have you today.
1: Thank you so much, Sanjay. It's good to be here.
0: It's good to have you. (laughs) So um, my first question to you, Mr. Wickham, is we're on the cusp of the big NABJ convention and career fair with these conventions being heralded as, and this is, I'm quoting, premier multi-day conferences for journalism, education, career development, networking, and innovation with special guests and speakers from presidents like Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, and George W. Bush to pop culture luminaries Chance the Rapper and film actor and director Michael B. George. Mr. Wickham, did the founders envision what we have now and what was it like to be one of about 44, 45 journalists holed up in that Sheverton hotel room in December, 1975, meeting to draft the first ever NABJ constitution bylaws and mission statement.
1: You know, we knew that uh, in our coming together that NABJ would be something special, but we had no idea that it would grow into the, the behemoth of a professional organization that it is today. Um, we, um, We were in survival mode Uh, back in 1965, 75, most newspapers, most television stations had just one of us. The New York Times had maybe three or four, Uh, but uh, in the Washington Post, maybe two. But most other papers had just one. And and so NABJ was our newsroom away from our newsroom. It was the place that we came together at to talk about survival, you know, how, how you get through. Uh, today into tomorrow, uh, how you uh, uh, how you deal with an editor uh, who, uh, who was treating you uh, in a way that you thought was unkind, unfair, um, you know, uh, how, how you got on the air. If you started off uh, as someone behind the camera in television, it, it, it was our learning. Uh, it was our learning post. It was our learning tree, as Gordon Parks would say. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, we didn't have the big vision. Uh, but we had a vision and it was a survival vision and keep in mind that we were coming out of a time uh, not too long before us that produced the Kerner commission report in 1968 where the kernel commission talked about the failure of the media to reflect the interests and concerns of, of people of color but particularly black people in the united states it talked about the failure of media particularly the failure of media to hire and promote and to uh, and to and, and to give license to black journalists to go off and cover stories of importance um, to black folks, and not just in the black community, because there are stories of importance to us that are not in the black community. There are stories of importance to us that have to do with where we send our soldiers, where we send our federal dollars, do we, uh, you know, uh, what what our, what our global perspective is. All these are stories of importance to black folks. Uh, so, so we, the media had been chastised for their failure to do that, and early on in the late 60s, they were hiring people off the street. <laughs> they, they were, <laughs> up, you know, if if you if you could speak or write a sentence, you you had access to a newsroom for a while. Uh, but then, you know, because the nation has such a short attention span, the Kerner Commission three, four, five years after its report didn't have as much impact in this society. The nation had moved on. And so uh, so those of us who were in media were finding it hard to stay in media. Uh, and that's what brought us together in 1975.
0: Now we're on the same wavelength this morning, Mr. Wickham, because my next question refers to the Kerner Commission report. So I have the statistics that colonelized just how bad it was at that time. So a Kerner Commission report back in the late 60s, said fewer than 5% of people employed by the news business and editorial jobs in the U.S. were Black. And fewer than 1% of the editors and supervisors were Black. And then in 1972, it says the Dow Jones Newspaper Fund reported that only 162, and this is what they called us back then, Negroes, Only 162 Negroes received journalism degrees, and according to Wayne uh, Dawkins, the author of the NABJ storybook that you're quoted in, he wrote that some Black journalists at the beginning of the NABJ creation idea, some of you thought, well, there's too few of us to really sustain a national organization for black journalists. And I wanted to ask you, how did you remain optimistic along with the other founding members and cohesive enough to persist? And I think, well, you just said it in your, that you believed advocacy was important, but even if you have other black journalists at that time saying, hey, listen, there's not even enough of us to do this. How did you persist through that element of pessimism?
1: Well, you know, listen, those 44 people um, were the linear successors of Black folks who, um, uh, who, who marched in Birmingham uh, to, uh, uh, to um, support the bus strike. Uh, they, they're the linear successors of Black folks who dared to try to escape slavery, uh, the enslavement of Black folks during uh, that oppressive a uh, 200-year-plus period. Uh, there, there was there were always among us people who dared to take the chance, who dared to to pursue opportunity when opportunity clearly was not there to be seen by most. Mm-hmm. So so there were more journalists, black journalists, in the United States in 1975 than the 44 of us, uh, but there were 44 who thought something special could come of a collective of Black journalists. Something special could come of the willingness of, of Black folks to come together in a profession that we recognize, uh, as Reggie Jackson would say, was the straw that stirs the drink of America.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Uh, Mr. Wickham, I wanted to do something and I uh, I want to backtrack a little bit. I want to go back to your formative beginnings. Um, And if you feel, listen, I just, let's skip that for today. I could totally understand. Um, But let me give you my adage first, uh, before I ask you this question about your formative upbringing as an orphan. Uh, There's an adage that says it's not how you start, but how you end up. You grew up in Baltimore and was raised by your aunt. And that was after being tragically orphaned by your father. Your father, John Wickham's murder of your mother, DeSylvia Virginia Chase, and his subsequent suicide. Many other people would have imploded after that, but not you. You became one of the luminaries, not just of Black journalism, but journalism. So I wanted to ask you what do you believe happened to you to catalyze your will to persist through such horror?
1: That's a difficult question, Uh, and it's one that I've been asked on several occasions, and I struggle with the answer. I was eight when I lost my parents. Um, I was one of five children at home, and I had a sister, um, uh, my father's child by another woman. So there were six of my father's children, five he had with my mother, and one outside of the house, as we would say, uh, one in the street uh and it broke us all up as a family we were we were one one night one day we were together and this tragedy happened overnight uh and in the morning hours as we awakened uh the house was full of relatives who packed us up and sent us in different directions literally uh uh, i saw very little of my other siblings um over the next 15 years or so. So that was traumatic enough. Uh, but there was also the trauma of just trying to deal with the loss and, and, and the sense of self. Who am I? You know, uh, as a child, you, you really kind of, you ask yourself that question, maybe not in such a pointed way, but you try to, to discover who you are. Uh, uh, and before my parents, uh, before my parents passed, Uh, Both my parents worked, and so my mother would send us after school, she would have us go to uh, the Enoch Pratt Library, that's Baltimore's public library, and we would go to the branch at North Avenue and Pennsylvania Avenue. Now That doesn't mean much to folks in in New York except that if they watched Baltimore explode a few years ago when there was rioting here, that the epicenter of the violence that was on national TV, CNN was there, was right in front of that library. And ironically, while everything else was closed, the library stayed open. Mm. And for me, that was, it was, I I didn't expect anything left because it was open all throughout my life. And and when I would go to the library uh, as a second grader, and the first half of my third grade, I lost my parents in December uh, of my third grade year. Every day, there would be a reading hour and the librarian would read to us. Uh, and that reading spurred my interest in ways that carried over after the loss of my parents. It, it made me uh, curious. It made me see the world beyond. I could see a world beyond where I was. I could see a world beyond the tragedy of, that, of the loss of my parents. Uh, I was shipped off to, my, to an aunt who lived in public housing. She had six children, a husband, um, and she took two of us. So now there's eight children, a husband and a wife, in a two-bedroom public housing unit in, in Cherry Hill in South Baltimore, a southern uh, section of the city. And, uh, and it was great poverty. We, we, we were very, very poor. But I went there, being able to see beyond. I, I could always, from that, from those sessions at the library where they would read to us, I could see a life beyond uh, uh, that which I had uh, at that moment. And it, and it was always the thing that moved me, uh, the the vision that I had uh, of things beyond where I was. I was always curious. Curiosity. I tell people. I tell my students today that curiosity is the taproot of journalism. Mm. Uh, if you're not curious about things unknown to you, uh, you'll never be a good journalist. You, you might be a writer who can write a, a story. You might be an on air person who can uh, go on air and, 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 and verbalize an event, but you'll never be a good journalist because mm. curiosity is what, is what drives Journalism. It's the it's the questioning, it's the, it's the, it's the uh, drive to question someone, to probe, to push beyond the limits of one of someone, someone's willingness to expose to you uh, what is going on, or what is happening. Um, ju- good journalism doesn't begin until someone says to you, No, I'm not gonna talk to you.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Prior to that, you're just an information taker. So, <laughs> so 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 it was it was it was that experience in the library. Uh, as a kid, as a a seven-year-old and an eight-year-old that really fed uh, 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 that something inside of it that kept a fire burning that drove me past that tragedy.
0: Would you say, in a sense, that words saved you? Story. Mm.
1: Story saved me.
0: Story saved you. Now, I, I, I have your book thinking black, I have that one, Um, but I don't have Woodholm, a black man's story of growing up alone. Is that story connected to your orphaning?
1: It's the story. Yeah, I I tell people, it's it's the story of my middle passage. It's a story from age eight um, to 18, mm -hmm. 10 year journey through my life. Uh, It begins with the loss of my parents and actually ends when I go off into the military and off to Vietnam, um, so it's it's those those ten years, and uh, it deals with a lot of uh, a lot of trauma, uh, it deals with a lot of uh, uh, frustration, um, failure, uh, overcoming failure. Um, I, I sit here today as a, as the founding dean of this school. I, I, I was called upon by the university to create the school the School of Global Journalism and Communication here at Morgan State University. They didn't know, uh, the president didn't know when he called upon me to do that, uh, that I was um, kicked out of three high schools. He didn't know that I had gone on to get a high school GED uh, on my way to Vietnam. He didn't, know, he didn't know that part of my life story. So, uh, so I got a pass in that way. And, and he looked at this, what happened in my life beyond that. But the 18 years that I cover, or the 10 years that I cover in my book, that's the story. I tell that story. I tell the story about the people who were fellow travelers, uh, folks who, uh, who were my friends who didn't make it, mm. and, and the people uh, who, uh, who helped me along the way. A, a wonderful uh, woman named Essie Hughes, who was uh, every bit of uh, four feet 10, maybe four feet 11 inches tall was the vice principal of the final of the last high school that I got to attend, uh, because of her. She, she, she literally waged a battle with the principal. She was the vice principal to get me into that school. When my record arrived first and the principal looked at it and said, I'm not having any of this kid. He's not,
0: coming.
1: <laughs> you know, yeah. so, uh, but, but then I found out when I went back to write this book and I researched it and I talked to her many years later and found out that, uh, She was a classmate of Thurgood Marshall's. Wow! And had uh, had been in class one day when the teacher came in, enraged by an article that H. L. Mencken uh, had written. Mencken was the uh, firestone uh, kind of uh, um, uh, fire-breathing, I should say, um, columnist at the Baltimore Sun, and many thought to be quite the racist. And had written this column that had enraged this teacher uh, at uh, Frederick Douglass High School here in Baltimore. And so he turned to Thurgood Marshall and said, Thurgood, you should go down to this Mencken's house and take this and challenge him. Mm-hmm. And Thurgood Marshall backed away. He didn't want to do it. But here, a little four feet, 10 inch, Essie Hughes says, I'll do it. Uh, mm-hmm. I discovered that story late in life. And it, and it helped me to think about the real meaning of courage. It doesn't ah. come from muscle and brawn. It doesn't, it, it doesn't come from... Uh, um, of being able to build your body and your strength in such such a way that you could physically defeat someone. The courage, the real courage comes from deep within. Uh, And it gets back to your point earlier about the formation of NABJ. We we had a lot of people who were just courageous and who wanted to, uh, to to brave the process of challenging the media to give us a license uh, to raise and tell the stories of importance about, uh, of importance to Black folks.
0: And I just want to say, um, to dovetail off of your talking about courage, I did read like right after you going to five high schools, I didn't know the background um, of what happened with you going to so many schools, but I did see um, in my research that you went to five high schools. After that, you went to Vietnam, served in the Air Force, Um, And was awarded a Vietnam Service Medal. Right. So I just want to thank you for that while I have you on the podcast. Um, When we talk about a testament to courage, you went from uh, a turbulent high school experience, getting a GED and then winding up in the White House. So before I ask you about those expeditions to the White House, I want to ask you, how does it make you feel to see this fruition of efforts where even top political campaigners come to NABJ events?
1: Uh, In in many ways, I think it's a good thing. Mm -hmm. Recognition of the uh, potential, if not the reality, of uh, of the muscle that our organization can have. Um, uh, we struggle with that, with using that muscle. But it's a recognition of that, and and uh, and I think in in some ways we we made good use of it. In other ways, I think we've kind of blown the opportunity. Uh, but uh, you know, Barack, Barack Obama came to us, um, Hillary Clinton, uh, and um, uh, Bill Clinton. Uh, others, you know, have sought our uh, our. Um, Uh, our
0: proximity.
1: Mm. I I was about to say they've sought our council, but they didn't see our council. They Mm sought our proximity. They wanted to be near us. Okay. You know, it's it's useful for so many politicians, at least they believe this, to be able to say uh, when they go to a black church uh, or to a black community center that I was at the National Association of Black Journalists Convention last year and I met with so-and-so, so-and-so. You know, and they think that will help uh, uh, give them uh, pro- the credentials they need uh, to ask for votes.
0: Power mm-hmm. votes. It's, I got it. <laughs> um, it's apparent from your impactful career in journalism that you were destined to write, especially with your view that stories saved you. You're fiery compelled and extended your gifted craft of journalism politics where you involved other Black journalists um, at White House convenes in 1995 and 1997 and subsequently wrote a book on Bill Clinton. Can you describe the importance you felt at that time for personally vesting your journalism in this area?
1: I think everything in America is political. I'm amazed at people who don't vote, who who don't participate uh, in the process, because they'll say, I'm not political or uh, Mm -hmm. politics, you know, uh, I've got too much going on in my life to be concerned. Everything in America is political. It's driven by politics, by political decision making. And for us as Black folks who were enslaved in this country for over two centuries, who had uh, uh, another century of Jim Crow um, 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 foisted upon us, uh, to have gone through that three century period to have the opportunity. To sit in the White House, to uh, to talk to a president, to speak to the uh, the chief of staff, or uh, in the case as the case was of Condoleezza Rice when we visited her, uh, the National Security Advisor as she was at the time, uh, that's huge. It's significant, you know. It, it, I think we 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 really benefit from knowing more about our history. Mm-hmm. You know, people need to know that. Uh, uh, that, it, that in, in 19, um, I think it was 1902 uh, when Booker T. Washington uh, had dinner in the White House uh, with uh, Theodore Roosevelt. It was a national scandal that a black man ate in the White House. Mm. And not that many years after that, we were sitting in the cabinet room of the White House. With the President of the United States. we uh, mm. weren't the only Black group, group of Black folks to get there. Uh, it didn't, uh, it, did it solve all of our problems? No. But we were heard. Uh, and I think to, to the extent that we were able to, uh, to give voice to our issues, some things did change.
0: Do you believe the emergence of Black journalists from the era in which you have found NABJ? Is inextricably tied to the emergence of Blacks in politics? Like, is there a correlation?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, in, in many ways, we were kindred souls. We kind of, we, we, listen, we saw ourselves on the same path. Uh, and, and by the way, that was frightening to many of our white editors <laughs> who, who thought we were too close, too close to Jesse, too close <laughs> to Clayton Powell. Mm-hmm. too close to Barbara Jordan, too close to Shirley Chisholm. They thought we were too close. You know, mm-hmm. they, they never thought white journalists who got on the inside of white political candidates, white political office holders who, who went to dinner with them, who, uh, who were able to give us that inside story, they never thought they were too close. Right. But They were afraid that we were too close. Uh, there, was, there was a kinship. There was a, a the, the road to... Uh, to uplifting black people in this country was the same road that journalists and politicians travel together often. I know I, I, that makes some people squirm today. Oh, we, I, I, I can't be that close. Mm-hmm. Cut it out. Who writes the inside books? in America about politics. Mm -hmm. White journalists who get the inside track. Mm. White journalists who are allowed to to go behind the curtain to see what the wizard is up to. They get Uh the inside track and and they write these books and they make millions of dollars, but more importantly, they influence decision-making. They influence the way people think about these folks. Uh, and and I don't see a great hue and cry that oh uh, uh, they've been bought off by these uh, they, they they're too close they, they they've been comp that journalism has been compromised, but when we seek to have that inside access, uh, even among our own group, you know we kind of oh you know Wickham is too close to Jesse, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? okay. uh, no. Stop it, people. Stop it.
0: And, and so you think that's the fear that some um, higher up whites in the system of journalism had with the proximity of Blacks um, in politics and in the White House, et cetera?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think it is. Uh, listen, I, I think that uh, many white folks who control media are uncomfortable when they see Black journalists um, um operating too closely to black politicians, black activists, uh, black leaders. Uh, mm-hmm. And they think that their journalism has been compromised. Uh, but when uh, some of the great journalists, so-called white journalists of our time, uh, are able to get inside uh, of the ropes and write about white politicians and white activists and white political leaders, they, they, they get uh, New York Times bestselling books,
0: And no one questions uh, their journalism. I want to take a step back to that decimated 2009 recession. And I want to ask you, how did you feel when the 2009 recession decimated traditional journalism jobs, papers and magazines in its wake? Like what concerns had you about journalism and black journalists during that time?
1: Well, even before we got to 2009, you know, um, the newspaper industry had something called the year 2000 plan. And the year 2000 plan, they came up with this late 1980s, was to have um, a percentage of newsroom employees equal to the percentage of Black folks in the country by the year 2000. Uh, And as we approached the year 2000, maybe somewhere around 1995, uh, the the, the folks who ran the American Society of Newspaper Editors, as it was then titled, uh, decided that it will never meet this goal. So they moved the bar. So it became the, the year 2000 plan became something like the year 2020 plan. Uh, I make this point to say that even before the recession, uh, there was a recession for black <laughs> journalists. There was a recession in terms of the hiring and the promotion and the retention of black journalists, uh, even before. Uh, there was a real financial recession in this country that, that caused uh, a contraction in our industry. Uh, so we, we, uh, we, we saw it coming uh, and uh, it didn't surprise us. Uh, it certainly uh, uh, accelerated uh, the, um, the losses that we suffered, um, but um, um, it should have encouraged us to find another way. It should have encouraged us. You know, we, we, so many of us think that the top of the hill is to work for somebody else.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: To, to achieve is to, uh, is to be a uh, Nate Burleson. You, you name the person uh, on TV or mm-hmm. major journalists working in media. And, 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 and while they uh, do a good job, they don't own it. Uh, and and we, had a, we had a period of time, you know, uh, uh, BET, uh, certainly was a, a Essence.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, used to be Black-owned, right?
0: Well, it's, it's Black-owned again.
1: A, a, a Black-owned again?
0: Yeah. So Time sold it a couple of years ago. And the name of the um, man and his family who own it now, they were major entrepreneurs, so they bought it. So again, it has assumed black leadership. Good. Mm -hmm.
1: But not so Ebony and Jet.
0: (laughs) Not so Ebony and Jet.
1: (laughs) (laughs) My my point simply is, uh, 1827, first black newspaper in America, Freedom's Journal, Uh, and the editors in the front page editorial uh, made the point uh, that they created the paper because the time had come for us to be able to tell our own stories. There's not enough of that today. With all, the, with all the entrepreneurship that's taking place, with all the expansion of media, with all the transition from uh, uh, legacy newspapers to digital newspapers, and, and from legacy TV to, and radio to streaming, there's very little uh, entrepreneurship from the black community uh, that gives us uh, an opportunity uh, to control media, and that's, this is what we have to uh, we have to pursue ownership. Mm-hmm. So we stop apologizing and trying to make make excuses uh, for our good journalism.
0: Well, Mr. Wickham, do you think that? Well, some people would say the internet, in some measure, has helped rectify this dilemma, especially with ownership mm-hmm. of. Um, Black media, Black journalism, Black journalistic media. And what would you say to that?
1: I would say no. I would say I'm on Facebook. I'm on Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) I've got a couple thousand followers. A couple thousand followers are a couple thousand followers. You know, it's not uh, a newspaper with uh, half a million readers. Mm. Uh, it's, It's not a television station that has wide... Uh, uh, re- a viewership. So I think we have to, we, we need to talk about new media. We need to talk about new ways to collect and disseminate news and information. We need to talk about b- the, how can we be creative uh, in, in, in that way? Uh, how can we uh, look beyond the uh, horizon at new technology to create ownership opportunities for black folks that have not yet been imagined. Those are the things we should be contemplating. Uh, In that way, I guess you can say the internet will be helpful, but if you just thought about Twitter, um, uh, you know, or uh, even blogging takes us, it advances us uh, uh, down the path, but not far enough.
0: What, in your opinion, is the future for blacks in journalism? Uh, What else do you think we need to say ultra competitive uh, with risks that news outlets may not necessarily have to hire us to equitably comply with EEOC mandates?
1: Well, listen, the challenge for black journalists is just as it has been since the formation of NABJ. It is to dare to be black. Dare to be black and then dare to be a journalist who is black. That's a challenge. Into mm-hmm. a newsroom uh, and raise your voice when you see Uh, stories that are not covered, that should be covered. I'll give you an example. Uh, When I um, went into my first newsroom, I was a student at the University of Maryland back in 1974. Uh, uh, I went in as a weekend reporter at the Baltimore Evening Sun, my first day on assignment there. I go in, I'm there, just an editor there, and he's got a stack of uh, story ideas. And he says, uh, here, rookie, uh, go through this and, and give me your thoughts about what we should be covering today. And I went through there uh, and I, I handed him back the basket and I said, I think we ought to cover this story. And that, that story I was pointing to was a mortgage burning at a Baptist church. Uh huh. He said, Well, I think you ought to cover this story. And he handed it to me. It was a bull roast at a uh, uh, Veterans of Foreign Wars uh, site. And I thought, Well, they do bull roast all the time. Mm hmm how often do you burn a mortgage at the church? Mm-hmm. Black churches, you know, at least back then, they, they, they're more powerful and financially uh, 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 able today to do this quicker. But back in those days, it might take you 25, 30, 40 years to pay your mortgage off. And mm-hmm. I do this whole thing as a, as a college senior. I had to explain this to my editor. Uh, and then finally he relented and let me go and cover the mortgage burning. Uh, But how many black journalists, how many are afraid if I raise my voice in this way, uh, they'll think I'm just a black radical and I lose my job.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: But dare to be black and and dare to be a real journalist. I mean, even aside from the issue of race, the mortgage burning was a better story.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: So we, we just have to find the courage uh, to go out and do our jobs, the courage to be Black, not back away, uh, and understand that white folks bring this to the newsroom every day. Uh-huh. They bring their courage. They bring their point of view. Uh, they see events through their mind's eye uh, and, and argue uh, for coverage from that perspective. And we need to share with our newsroom colleagues uh, our mind's eye view of news and argue for coverage in that way.
0: Mm-hmm. And I'm correctly preassuming that that is exactly what you're instilling in your students at your journalism school at Morgan State. So talk to me some about this new documentary film that you just finished and wrapped up about Morgan.
1: Just finished it last night. <laughs> Morgan State University, a history of a national, The History of a National Treasure. Uh, it's a story, uh, listen, it's, it's Morgan's story, but it could be the story of almost any HBCU. There's some wonderful stories. Uh, Shaw University just did a documentary recently on this story. Compelling. It's un, it's a, and, and, and I want people to see my documentary, but you got to watch Shaw University's documentary too. Shaw University at one time had a medical school. It had a law school. I mean, it's, it's the, the stories are amazing, uh, and to know the story of Morgan and how it developed uh, from a, uh, uh, a, a Methodist church from the basement of a Methodist church in Baltimore uh, to become the uh, the behemoth it is today, ten thousand students, uh, a massive uh, physical plant, uh, an endowment of uh, over a hundred million dollars—not big by Harvard standard, but huge by HBCU standards. Uh, these are things that uh, uh, that are important for us to know, but it's more important for us to know the struggle. It's mm. more important for us to, for, to understand how Morgan's growth is linked to the Harlem Renaissance. It's more important for us to understand how Morgan's growth is linked to the Civil Rights Movement. It's, uh, Morgan is the only HBCU in which Malcolm X. Um, uh, uh, traveled to uh, to uh, uh, to make a presentation, and he actually had a debate here with a white historian, uh, and that's that, that, and that's a part of what shaped one of the things that shaped this university. Um, he was here right after Martin Luther King was here. Martin Luther King uh, went to uh, the march on Washington and talked about a dream that he had. When he first gave that portion of his speech here at Morgan in 1958. So, so there's there's some wonderful pieces to tell about the story of Morgan and about the linkage of, uh, of our HBCUs and the great tradition. And, you know, there's going to be a, re. Uh, this is a timely piece because I, I predict at least we're going to see a significant growth in uh, attendance at HBCUs by black students who uh, now that uh, higher education institutions have been given license. Mm. To close their doors to return to almost a Plessy versus Ferguson uh, kind of mentality about uh, who gets to attend these schools, I think we're going to see a lot of black students returning uh, to HBCUs uh, and I think uh, in many ways that's a good thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. I already thought in my spirit when I heard that U.S. Supreme Court decision, there's going to be a renaissance or a coming home of a lot of African-American students back to HBCUs. But I was thinking, mm, or maybe just, is this me viscerally feeling this? I have no research for it. I mean, it just makes common sense to me. But to hear you say it, it kind of affirms what I was feeling.
1: Listen, the last ones who will come back home will be the athletes. I was talking about the, the, the critical mass of Black athletes that I think eventually will return to HBCUs uh, once they come to understand that their their migration back to these campuses will be followed by ESPN and will be followed by the scouts from the NBA uh, and the NFL and Major League Baseball uh, because uh, greed is good. (laughs) Ultimately, those teams uh, are looking for the top athletes. They're gonna go where they can find them.
0: Right, I love that strategic thinking um, and, and I, I want to know, what inspired you to pursue uh, production for your Morgan State documentary?
1: Well, uh, when I stepped down as dean, uh, my intention was to fully retire and go to my home in Orlando. I commute now between Orlando and, and Baltimore uh, and just chill out, play some golf. <laughs> and and uh, I love to uh, vacation, to cruise and to travel. Uh, But but the storyteller in me saw an opportunity when the president of the university asked me as as I was leaving, if I would do a documentary on a guy who gave Morgan $20 million, fellow by the name of Calvin Tyler, a black man, who had attended Morgan briefly and then went off to UPS where he made a fortune. And I did that. And just as I was completing that, the president said, would you make a 15 minute documentary on the history of Morgan? Uh, And um, I tried to do it, but (laughs) I couldn't do it in 15 minutes. I actually had up to about 50 minutes and had to start cutting it, but it's now now a 30 minute documentary. Uh, And as I was working on that, I was also working on a full length documentary on the history of a woman uh, by the name of Irene Diggs, who has a fantastic story um, to be told. She was a black anthropologist in the, um, in the tradition of Zora Neale Hurston. Uh, and she, she was a, a colleague of W.E.B. Du Bois and she's just a fantastic story. And we're working on, and we're still working on that. Uh, and we, we have in the Hopper now a project, we're going to do a, a documentary on um, returning veterans, black veterans from World War II and the GI Bill and how that GI Bill uh, created wealth in the white community uh, but did not create wealth in the Black community, and we want to talk about why. That's a storyteller in me. I just want to tell stories.
0: Do you really ever think you're going to retire from journalism?
1: Uh, I think I make transitions. I think most, many of us, uh, well, maybe not many of us, but there are enough of us who, who just make transitions. We, we, you might call it retirement, semi-retirement. We move from here to here. Um, for me, this is retirement. Mm-hmm. It really is. Documentary filmmaking about Black life in America, about Black life in the African diaspora, for me, that's, retire- that's a, boy, a dream come true to have uh, the opportunity to do this this kind of work.
0: When are we gonna see these things? Like, Where will they be posted?
1: Well, the, the piece that I did on uh, Calvin Tyler, the, the Black millionaire who gave the money to Morgan, uh, aired uh, in September on Maryland Public Television throughout the state. Uh, and uh, it's uh, it's it's on their website now, and anyone can okay. look at it. Uh, the piece that we just finished on Morgan, uh, the president's going to make a decision about when he wants to premiere it, and after that, uh, <clears throat> I'll make it available uh, uh, for people to see uh, far and wide. In fact, uh, <clears throat> I'm going back to Cuba in the fall. I've been uh, asked to come back and teach a master class. Wow in the fall to teach a master class about hbcus it's difficult for them in cuba to fix, to understand why we have historically black colleges and universities they they, they don't understand why there's a black college and so to, to tell the story uh i'm going to use the documentary uh and um and some other elements of storytelling to go back and explain to them help them understand what uh what led to, to the creation of this, these schools, of which there are now 107.
0: How would you describe what you want your legacy in journalism to be?
1: Simply <laughs> to be remembered. Hmm. Just to be remembered. You, uh, someone said to me once that um, the, the dead are not gone until they are forgotten. And so, as a journalist, all the work that I've done—the the columns I wrote for USA Today, and um, and the work that I did for uh, for CBS and and for the uh, uh, for BET uh, and um, and for Tom Joyner—I I ran a portion of his uh, Black America web website, the news section, for a few years. I would like to be remembered for the work that I've done.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: In the, in well- the, with some of the research that I do now, uh, I discover black journalists, and I wonder why they had to be discovered. And When I start looking at at the at the portfolio of their work, I said, "Wow, well, they did all of this!" <laughs> and, and, and it's hard to find out anything about them. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I think um, you know we no one gets eternal life, uh, but being remembered. But the work that you've done uh, certainly uh, uh, gives you uh, a sense of of being long after uh, the final breath uh, has been uh, emitted from your body.
0: Mr. Wickham, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to have you on the sidebar today. And we look forward to you doing more things with NYABJ in the future. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Thank you for
0: having me. We wish to express our most sincerest thanks to our distinguished guests. If you have enjoyed what you've heard, please subscribe and give The Sidebar a great review. As a reminder, the views and opinions expressed in every episode of The Sidebar belong to the individuals who made them and not to the NYABJ. For more information on the NYABJ, please visit www.nyabj.org. Music by Elisner Raps.